Welcome to the Davy Tree Expert Companies podcast, Talking Trees. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Each week, our expert arborists share advice on seasonal tree care, how to make your trees thrive, arborists' favorite trees, and much, much more. Tune in every Thursday to learn more, because here at the Talking Trees podcast, we know trees are the answer. I'm joined this week by Dr. Thomas Whitney. He's a technical advisor for the Davy Institute. He's up in the Pacific Northwest and for Western Canada. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Hey, Doug. Good to meet you and happy to be here. Nice to see you. We're talking all about good bugs, bad bugs, and what they do with our trees. I want to start off by just asking you, how do you define something as a pest? Uh, that's a good question. First, I'd like to say there's no such thing as a bad bug. Uh, <laughs> you know, pests, how do we define them? Well, it, it really is a human exercise, I'd say, in trying to designate what organisms sort of affect things that we as humans value, right? So you can have uh, termites that affect uh, structures. We obviously value those structures, but they can also... Pests can also affect uh, ecosystems, so, so forestry pests, um, those resources that we may draw on for lumber, those are of our interests, and pests uh, diminish the value of those. And then on the flip side, which maybe we'll get to soon, there are those beneficial pests that sort of enhance uh, our interests as well. So when you're breaking down these pests, as far as, you know, affecting trees yeah how do you care uh classify them yeah good question so almost always we're talking about herbivores so these are insects that derive their nourishment from feeding on plant matter and uh we can break down pests into three main categories we have the leaf chewers we we also call them uh, defoliators the second group uh, we call sap feeders. They're feeding on the sap of the trees. And the third group are wood boring insects actually make their way inside the tree and uh, feed on the internal tissues. So of those three, is there one that's worse than others? Or I guess it just depends on the tree, depends on the climate, depends on the infestation, right? In this case, we can make some broad uh, assumptions here and say that Wood boring insects are by far the most severe for the, the health of the tree. If you think about leaf chewers and sap feeders, they're both interested in uh, sort of reaping the spoils that the tree produces. The trees are going to undergo photosynthesis, produce those uh, uh, nutrient-rich sugars. But leaf feeders, uh, the leaf chewers, excuse me, are going to go straight after those chlorophyll uh, rich leaves and diminish the tree's ability to produce those sugars. It's detrimental, reduces the vigor a little bit. The sap feeders are bypassing that whole system and going straight for the end product. They're going straight for the sugars and extracting those sugars. So again, that's diminishing the vigor a little bit too, but eh, a little bit of robbed sugars isn't going to kill a tree. Now with the wood borers, on the other hand, they have a taller task. They need to penetrate the, the stiff defenses of a tree, get inside the bark. and But if they're able to establish, they're actually uh, kind of destroying the plumbing, the vascular system of the tree and, and 
mitigating the ability of that tree to move those water and nutrients up and down. So that's when we really start to see branch dieback in the in the tree and, and slow and steady decline of its health. Well, that does sound nasty, but I would assume, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong, are the leaf chewers the things that homeowners notice the most? Yeah, exactly. So they're the most conspicuous, uh, at least when we're talking about symptoms and also just seeing the organisms themselves. Um, you know, a defoliation event is is pretty noticeable. Yeah. Maybe sap feeders are a little less noticeable, but they're more sessile organisms. They're going to stay put, keep those, those straw-like mouthparts inserted into the, the plant tissue for a long time. So you may notice things like aphids or scale insects. So for the leaf chewers, would caterpillars, are we talking about, or could it be something else? I'm, I'm trying to think in my head, you know, I'm thinking caterpillar. Absolutely. Caterpillars are a huge one. Again, caterpillars are the, the juvenile stage of moths and butterflies. You also get sawflies, which are not flies. Sawflies are the larvae of wasp-like organisms. There's also a lot of beetles that are leaf chewers. So out in your neck of the woods, you got the Japanese beetles, super uh, important exotic species. But then also you get uh, some natives as well that, that feed on both the larvae and the adults feed on leaves. And how about a couple nasty wood borers that you deal with? Oh boy, that's a good question. I mean, the, the obvious choice is the invasive emerald ash borer. Uh, you get these wood boring insects that the adults lay eggs on the outside of the uh, stem of the trees. And it's the larvae that hatch from those eggs. They have the task of go going inside, uh, initially boring into the tree and then wrecking havoc. But then you get bark beetles. So out here, there's uh, the western bark beetle down maybe where you're at. You get the southern pine bark beetle uh, that is making its way up. It's expanding its range into New England, actually. In the cases of bark beetles, it's the adults that bore into the tree initially, and then they make galleries and lay eggs inside those galleries. You know, I want to go a little bit off path here and continue with the emerald ash borer. For somebody that's in your position, talk about the first time you heard about the EAB and then watching the devastation come your way. I'm glad you asked that. I have a pretty unique perspective because I was in Kentucky for a few years, starting in 2011, when the Emerald Ash Borer was really just starting to get established. And I remember as a young entomologist uh, in grad school learning about this pest. And then in the summer of 2012, seeing these beautiful shade trees that were planted on the streets, maybe about 20 to 40 years old you know, over the summer, we're just starting to flag branches, die back. Uh, some of me and my buddies, we would actually, this isn't Davy approved. So the safety department, don't get angry with me. But as a young kid, we'd climb up the trees and look for the adult beetles and we'd see them up there starting to lay their eggs. Um, and then in 2015, I moved to, to Georgia and that's happened to be the time when the emerald ash borer was uh, arriving in uh, that part of the country. And so I, I saw that invasion front happen again. I was like, wow, I've seen this movie before. Well, fast forward to 2020, 
I start at Davie out here in the Portland, Oregon area. And just last June, uh, June 30th, 2022, what happens? The Emerald Ash Borer arrives in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it has kind of caused mass hysteria out here. And now the entire West Coast is on high alert because we have a native ash, the Oregon ash, that's super important in cooling down our riparian areas, salmon, steelhead habitat. You have the whole olive industry in California and olives are susceptible. It's, it's bad news. So that is a pest I'm all too familiar with. And uh, uh, all, all we can do is sort of hope to slow it down and get by ourselves a little more time. Yeah, since that that early introduction or discovery of this pest, have we been able to figure out anything to deal with it? Yeah, we've we've made a lot of strides. It's unfortunately when you talk about wood boring pests, I, I mentioned earlier that they are by far the most severe and devastating for tree health. However, they require a stressed tree to initially establish more often than not. They need those defenses to be uh, down in order to penetrate the bark initially and set up shop. Emerald ash borer is different. It attacks healthy trees. No matter what the tree is doing, even if it has the most sterling landscape uh, management strategy and, and all the best cultural practices, it is no match to emerald ash borer. So luckily though, we've really improved our chemistries over the year. And now the sort of gold standard is to inject these trees with a chemical called emamectin benzoate, which gives us a two year protection. It's a, it's a systemic insecticide. The insecticide will translocate throughout the tissues of the tree and remain in those tissues for two years so that when those adult emerald ash borer lay eggs on the bark and those larvae hatch and try to bore into the tree for the first time, they will also be consuming a little bit of that uh, pesticide and then die. So for the trees that we want to preserve, especially like the really large specimen trees, we need to be doing this every two years, pretty much indefinitely, uh, unfortunately. There is hope back here that ash trees that are re-sprouting will be able to, to grow again, but no one knows, you know, will the emerald ash borer still be here or has it moved on to the West? No one knows what's going to happen. Unfortunately, I think that the emerald ash borer has become an endemic resident of our continent now. Uh, I'm skeptical that ash will make such a comeback. Um, I mean, we've, we've seen this movie before with American chestnut, chestnut blight, uh, elms and uh, Dutch elm disease. It's, it's unfortunately something that we're just going to have to live with. I just pray that we don't see something that kills off all our maples because dang near all of our urban canopies are planted with maples. It seems like we just moved on and haven't learned this lesson of diversity in our urban canopies. And that's something well, that could really help. Yeah. Again, before we move on, let's talk about that lesson that, sh yeah. that we should have learned. 
And and on this podcast, I hear it a lot from arborists and scientists. Diversity is everything, isn't it? It sure is. You know, it's it's a it's a form of bet hedging. If you have a lot of different kinds of trees, and one pest or disease comes along, maybe an, an invasive, and wipes out a whole subset of those, then if you have a diverse canopy, you, you don't lose that much. That's the idea. It's quite simple. All right, let's get on to something a little bit more pleasant. How about <laughs> beneficial, beneficial insects? There's got there's good good guys out there. That's right. And of course, just to remind you, this is all based off of our human perspective, what is beneficial or not. But that said, yeah, there's a, a whole group of insects that we deem natural enemies, quote unquote. These include the predators and the parasitoids. These are the insects that attack the pests, the herbivores. So predators are actually capturing and feeding and consuming on those live pests and, and killing them outright. And then the parasitoids, I'm sure they've been brought up on your pod before, but if for those who are unaware, this is the, the movie Alien drew inspiration from these real live uh, organisms. What they do is they, these are mostly wasps and some flies. They capture their prey, their their uh, pest insect. They insert an egg either on top or inside of that live insect, along with some venom and some antibacterial uh, and antiviral substances to keep the insect alive as an egg incubator. And that egg hatches and the larvae feeds on the live insect from the inside out. And so the end result is the same as predation, where that you kill an individual pest it just takes a little longer and it's a little more uh, extreme. Yeah, we see it all over the garden, you know, parasitic wasps. <laughs> uh, and they're definitely a positive. But like you said, it is from our perspective. I think that's really interesting to look at it that way. Because, you know, like when I kicked it off with good bugs and bad bugs, it depends on who you ask. You know, Mother Nature is doing her thing, you know, putting a balance together, you know, people think of a yellow jacket as a bad bug, but it serves a purpose in nature. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we actually, <laughs> we, we, yellow jackets are actually uh, predators sometimes too. They can actually uh, feed on pests. So it really does depend on your perspective. Even the emerald ash borer that we were talking about, Doug, you know, it's not its fault that it was brought over here in Michigan in 2022, or sorry, 2002. And over the long haul of ecological time, I'm talking thousands of tens of thousands of millions of years, it's going to reach a new equilibrium and whatever new ecosystem happens to to be here. So it, it you're, you're spot on. So tell me a little bit about your journey to this position that you're in now where does it begin well uh as many entomologists uh say i became an entomologist by accident sort of <laughs> you kind of fall into it um i was a biology major in college at gonzaga university in spokane very interested in ecosystems uh e ecological interactions quite broadly ecology the the interaction between the living and the non-living environment. 
And I got this summer job with the USDA Agricultural Research Service in Corvallis, Oregon, working on uh, pests of small fruit crops. So think, um, you know, weevils that attack the roots of strawberry plants, for instance, or uh, the spotted wing drosophila that that lays eggs inside of uh, blueberries. And I found that, hey, you don't have to do any ethics paperwork surrounding these organisms. People don't really care if you study them or even kill insects. So it's a really good model organism to study ecology. So I ran with it and I did a a master's of entomology at University of Kentucky. I was actually researching spiders. I was looking at predator-prey interactions of woodland wolf spiders. I would go out every week by myself with a headlamp on in the middle of the night and look for uh, spiders. And the reason why you do that at night is because wolf spiders have this iridescent, these iridescent eyes where if you shine a light on them, they'll sort of uh, reflect back on you. So they're easy to spot. And I'd collect them and I was doing molecular gut content analysis. I'd essentially mash up these spiders and use PCR, uh, similar to what we uh, test COVID with, to test for certain prey that they may have been uh, feeding on. And the question there was, how does, how does their feeding change throughout uh, the season? These are winter active wolf spiders. So that was kind of a broad ecological uh, uh, pit stop in my, my career. And from there, I wanted to do more problem-based applied research, um, something more to do with pests and and plant insect interactions. And I found this program at university of Georgia in Athens, where I was looking at a scale insect. This is the Eastern white pine bast scale. It's a, it was at the time fairly novel and new to be finding it so prevalently on Eastern white pine. And it was associated with this, this uh, canker disease called calisiopsis canker on Eastern white pine. And my job was learning more about the scale insect. Probably my most impactful data chapter out of that dissertation was uh, doing population genetics to determine if this was an an exotic species or not. And we found that it's native and behaving in unusual ways. So I think my dissertation just sort of opened a can of worms and more questions (laughs) sort of arose. And my last stop before coming to Davie, this was sort of my stepping stone into the ornamental tree world, is I got a postdoc at Washington State University in Puyallup. This is outside of Tacoma, so it's on the western side of the Cascade Mountains. And I was working on pests of Christmas trees. So I was doing a lot of kind of young conifer pest research. Uh, I was learning a lot about uh, diseases as well, because they deal with a lot of diseases in these uh, conifer monocultures that they grow out there. And pandemic hit, Davy Davy job came up, and wow, what a cool gig! I mean, being able to travel around and and serve as kind of an extension agent uh, for for this company has been a real thrill. Actually, I've learned a whole lot, and to get paid to learn and enrich myself is pretty much the best uh, job I could think of. Well, tell me a little bit about the research that you're doing right now uh, with linden trees. Yeah, good question. 
we were talking about these natural enemies. They are all all around us and they're ubiquitous in, in the urban landscape, but sometimes they lose the battle or, or they're just not quite uh, effective at bringing down pest populations below a threshold that we see as adequate. So what I'm doing out in Portland is using biological control. It really hasn't been explored too much in the home landscape outside of, you know, small garden scenarios. Maybe you're familiar with this, Doug. So the idea is to augment the population of natural enemies, providing more, you know, supplemental individuals to try to turn the balance. So what I'm working with, I, I am working with the city of Portland and working on their street trees. They have a nice online street tree inventory and the legal designation of the street trees are it's the city's property, but the homeowner needs to take care of it. Kind of a raw deal for the homeowner. But uh, it's it's a good sort of uh, petri dish for us to work work in. So linden trees are notorious for getting aphids. Aphids are pretty benign pests. They eh, they decrease the vigor a little bit unless you got a really bad infestation. But they're more of a nuisance pest. They drop that sticky honeydew. Gets on your cars, on your patio furniture, things like that. Some people want the nuclear option to get rid of it. I don't like the honeydew. Come spray my trees. Come do a soil injection of a nasty systemic insecticide. You know, especially for something like a linden that flowers and is so bee attractive. We'd like to get away from from some of those uh, chemical management strategies if we can. So the idea here is asking the question, is there a biological control option that we can deploy that actually is effective on you know single landscape trees? And so we found a product that we think is interesting. It is an insect called Aphidolides. It is a midge, a little fly, similar to a little mosquito you'd see buzzing around. And these flies are, number one, they're pretty weak flyers. They're not like lady beetles that'll just fly away as soon as you release them. Number two, they're highly attractive to that aphid honeydew. They'll seek it out and lay their eggs right where, uh, where, where the honeydew happens to be present. And number three, lastly, the larvae that hatch from those eggs are voracious aphid predators. They're, they'll, they'll go after those suckers real hard. And so we're going to see. We, we hope that uh, this product, it's a little vial of 250 individuals hung on a tree early in the aphid, uh, early in the season where aphids are active. We're hoping that can provide some early season control and hopefully mitigate the amount of honeydew that we get on those trees. So tell me just a little bit more, like if I had a big tree, like how many of those vials would you think you'd be hanging? A lot of them or just it only needs one and then they, they keep spreading and spreading? We're starting with the, the lowest amount possible. There's two schools of thought. You can either do early season control or sort of later season severe knockdown. Um, when, once you've waited late in the season, the aphid population has already exploded. It's an exponential growth curve at some point, then maybe you need to put out lots of insects, but if you can hit them early, we're hoping to, to flatten the curve as it were, 
and uh, hopefully over the course of the season, not ha- not explode to those high numbers in the first place. How does that feel to be working on something like that? It's so positive. It's like, okay, we don't have to use chemicals. We can use this insect to deal with that insect. Uh, that's got to feel great. <laughs> it does feel great. The, the asterisk, I will say, is the, this particular predator has proven efficacy in settings like greenhouses and then highly controlled outdoor monocultural ag situations. So the fact that we're in uncharted territory here is a little bit anxiety inducing, but, you know, because it may not work, but that'll be good. This is what science is all about. You need to rule out these low hanging fruit in order to move on to other strategies. Well, Thomas, this has just been so enlightening. I just appreciate your time. Just great stuff. And we're going to have to talk again because I think we only, we only scratched the surface. Uh, I probably have 20 more questions. So thanks again for your time and we will set up another time to talk. Happy to do it, Doug. Thanks so much. Well, I hope you found that as fascinating as I did. I can't wait to talk with Thomas again for the show. Now tune in every Thursday to the Talking Trees podcast from the Davy Tree Expert Company. I am your host, Doug Oster, and do me a big favor Subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. And if you've got an idea for a show or a comment, send me an email to podcasts at davey.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at D-A-V-E-Y.com. And as always, we like to remind you on the Talking Trees podcast, trees are the answer. <laughs>